Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. Welcome to our latest episode, which is a dedicated look at the cover feature topic for this week's Autosport magazine, and that is the Williams Formula One team. The famous F1 mark has fallen far from its heights as one of the championship super squads, and it has regularly pledged its determination to retread old ground further up the grid. That tale will be very familiar to F1 fans, as the team is still yet to recapture any of its old glory, but there were signs in the 2020 season that Williams has finally turned the corner and its revival is really on. So, to discuss how Williams got there and also have a look back at some of the best cars the team has produced in Formula 1, I'm joined by two special guests. The first is Autosport's Chief Editor, Kevin Turner, and also on the podcast today is our Technical Editor, Jake Boxall-Legg. So, Kev, coming to you first, as the man in charge of, of everything at Autosport these days, but particularly when it comes to deciding what goes on the cover of our prestigious and well-loved magazine, why did we decide to to go back and look at the Williams story again? Because as we were sort of saying, as we were waiting to, to hit record on this podcast, we've been here before with these, you know, and, and as I alluded to in my introduction in that, yeah, Williams, is, of course, it's, it's, it's targeting getting back up the grid in Formula One, but currently it just feels a little bit different as we go into 2021. So why did we want to examine that? Yeah, well, um, certainly uh, long-term readers will recall that there <laughs> there were a few Williams revival covers throughout the 2000s into the early 2010s. And in fact, I think I recall being involved in some of the conversations where we just all agreed to stop doing it for a while because sadly it never really happened and it became, you know, it was a not a joke exactly, but, you know, it's difficult to sort of make that credible each time. 
Um, whereas now I think that there's a there's a real feeling of change, you know, new investment, new owners. It's no disrespect to uh, the Williams family. Obviously, did um, you know amazing things in Formula One and and motorsport generally. But I think um, I think time had come for change. Um, and uh, there was sort of noises coming out of the team that that you know maybe maybe things are going to improve. And of course, the F one regulations are also going to change in twenty twenty two and bring a budget cap in, which Williams is still working up towards. Whereas obviously, some of the front running teams are going to have to be coming down from quite a lot higher. Um, but Alex, I mean, you you spoke to a lot of the key key players. Do you think that's a fair? A fair summation of, of why there's that much more positivity now. Definitely, it's 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 a big moment of change for Williams. You know, as we say in the in the feature in the magazine, um, it's the first time in 44 seasons that the team is coming into a new Formula One season without the Williams family in charge. I mean, that's that seismic change. Okay, yeah, they departed uh, before the Italian Grand Prix last September, but now is the you know is the first season where they're going to have absolutely no involvement whatsoever, other than the name still being above the door. So yeah, it's a good moment to to take a look at things, but also as as we'll come on to I'm going to ask a question of Jake shortly it does seem that the 2020 season Williams sort of rounded the corner when it comes to the performance of its Formula One challenges from the lows of 2018 and particularly 2019 okay it didn't score a point last year which was which which on paper makes its season look worse than it was in 2019 when it got one point but as I, as I say in the feature, did, did kind of luck into that considering it took the two uh, Salvo or Alfa Romeo cars rather being disqualified uh, or sorry, penalised at the German Grand Prix for their, their start procedures. That's why Robert Kubica gets boosted up into that final point. So Williams didn't get in the points in 2020, but if you look at their pace comparison, as, as we say in the feature, it, it, it's, it's much better. They're much closer back to the front, not anywhere near getting there, but they actually do better in terms of the, the team averages over the season compared to Haas. So Williams are no longer the slowest team in Formula One, judging by the, the results that they produced. So they finally got to the point of starting to deliver on the promise of wanting to get back up the grid. And it's uh, and it's real change, you know, in terms of the, the, the senior management of the squad. I spoke to, to Simon Roberts, who at the time we were speaking, I think it was the second Bahrain race just before the end of last season. He was the acting team principal, having joined from uh, previously working at McLaren back in uh, back in the summer before the 2020 season finally started. He is now confirmed as going to be the team principal going forwards. He'll be reporting to uh, Jost uh, Capito. So my pronunciation is terrible. Apologies for that. It's, it's, it's ridiculous, really, when you consider my surname, but there we go. And, and so that's going to be a new senior management structure. So, you know, these are the guys that are going to be taking it forwards. But Doralton Capital, the, the new owner, they've come in and they've not they've not made a song and dance about it. They've not gone, right, we're going to be winning within five years. We're going to be back on the podium in three years or, or whatever uh, Renault did when it came back as the as the Renault as, as the as the works Renault team, the sort of the the targets that it ambitiously set and then sort of failed to back up with a budget and definitely failed to back up with the results. So it's sort of going about it quietly under promising, hopefully over delivering and building on those shoots that, that could have been seen. So, Jake. Why don't, why don't we come to you next and talk about last year's uh, Williams car, the FW43. Uh, Obviously, we're going to be seeing it again, most of it anyway, with the coronavirus uh, pandemic re- requiring the cars to be carried over into 2021. But even at this stage last year, if we sort of, we imagine we've moved forward a few weeks in time and it's February 2020, winter testing, immediately George Russell's coming out and saying this is, this is a big step forward. You could sort of see it in the times they were producing. But why was it? A different and better car compared to what they'd had in 2019. Well, the 2019 project as a whole was just a little bit of a disaster. Pre-season testing, they didn't have a car ready to go. Not something that you would expect of a team of of such pedigree. Uh, there were lots of reasons thrown about for that. I think attention was given to details in the 2019 car that were inconsequential. Not enough attention was given to 
getting a car working and ready and making sure that everything fits together there were the discussions that some of the body panels came out of the autoclaves and whatever and didn't they, they don't usually i wouldn't say they they fit 100 percent of the time and it still requires a little bit of chopping and changing but they got to the test they were like oh we've got to get the 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 hand drills and the dremels out and and try and whittle this down so it fits on the car i remember speaking to dave robson about this he said that the the general design of the car was with a two-year life cycle in mind first one was just to get the car there uh, and racing and then over the off season they'd always plan to try and fettle it a bit and and see what they they could do with it and it turned out that he was right they could extract a lot more out of that general design principle it's still not impressive even though they were much better and george russell got into q2 a couple of times throughout the season you know it it was solid but I think 2019 being such a, a disaster kind of uh, skews it a little bit, let's say. And how much did they change the car over the, the course of last year? Because it was quite difficult for, for all the teams, considering that they knew they were going to have to continue them on into, into the following season within a, a token of restriction in terms of the upgrades and the developments they will be doing for 2021. But I remember speaking to, and, and as you mentioned, Dave Robson there is the sort of uh, the, the engineering boss at Williams, but Simon Roberts as well. They both explained that they got through a couple of uh, rear wing designs that they certainly felt um, improved the, the way that the FW43 worked because they were able to see what was going on when it rained at the Styrian Grand Prix in qualifying and then again in Hungary when there was some rain there and they realised there were things that they could they could update on the rear of the car but generally they just felt that they'd, they'd, they'd updated the design early in you know coming into 2020 to make it more raceable and then they were able to progress with that across the season as you say that they, they know that it's, it's nowhere near as fast as it should be in terms of Formula 1 but they were just pleased with the, the progress that they made so what in terms of across the 2020 season did how much did you see from Williams compared to other teams I think yeah I think a lot of the work that they did over 2019 in practice kind of set them in quite good stead for 2020 and I remember one of their front wing developments particularly in in Japan um it was good to the point where Robert Kubica said that I want to race with it right away um and the team said, no, because we're just testing this out. This might be something for next year. And it, it did end up being what um, the, the 2020 front wing was was based on. Um, and then Kubica went and shunted it in the wall in qualifying anyway. So it probably wouldn't have been a good idea to give it to him anyway. Um, but it was just putting, that, putting in that groundwork, just making these small aerodynamic tweaks. It's kind of like the front wing is sort of like a mirror in many ways. Um, you can change things and it will def- like with a mirror if you move the mirror slightly it will deflect light in a certain a different way and it's like doing that with the front wing um you've got to try and unlock as much of the rest of the car as you can properly um and you start at the front and work your way back uh, a lot of the b- bodywork was tightened up as well you could see the williams looked a little bit stronger in terms of cooling and that kind of thing as well so it was just making sure that the car was just getting better and better and they were just continually working at it so i think that's got to be commended for sure williams's big problem i would say since 1997 when ag Newey left to go to mclaren is that they haven't been on top of aero um they've not had a, i think even patrick head would concede that it, when they were competitive with the bmw engines and michelin tires in the early 2000s that was a, an okay car with a rocket engine and some good tires um 
they haven't really been on top of the aero. And I think that's why it's important, the new decision to have a greater collaboration with Mercedes on parts that they don't really need to be making. So Williams, staunchly independent, and I think a lot of people respect and admire them for that. And in the old days, that worked very well for them. Um, it tripped them up a couple of times, but generally they were able to get the innovations to move them ahead anyway. F1 isn't quite the same anymore. Um, and you know, when you've got limited resources, as they have, to spend some of those resources on parts that either don't really give you any performance or that you could just buy off the shelf from somebody else anyway doesn't make a huge amount of sense. So hopefully this new approach of a greater collaboration with Mercedes will free up the resources they do have to really put it into the areas that they need to improve. And I would say that's you know wind tunnel in the, in the aero work. And that's where I think there'll be the real gains that we'll hopefully see from Williams over the next you know next few seasons indeed and Jake on that how, how is it actually going to work with the move to run Mercedes gearboxes and also certain hydraulic components that Williams was, was previously building itself and you know just just what kind of a, a boost could the team be looking at just by doing that well, it's a similar story to what Alpha Tauri had done over the last few years. I remember speaking to Jody Eggington back in 2019 just about that decision to align closer with Red Bull, um, start running their suspension and rear end and that kind of thing. And he said it just, sim- as Kev said, it simply frees up resources that you don't, that you're putting into that. And it's not a particularly performance differentiating area. Um, and you can then put those people and put that resources and put that. that time into the other areas where you need to improve and again that's where you've seen so much improvement from AlphaTauri they have this um, structure now which gets the best out of people it's kind of simple second year engineering degree project management in a way Um, you have x amount of resources you have to allocate them in a certain way and if you're spread too thinly like Williams did because they weren't the most well-funded team um you know, you're not gonna have the optimal result for every single little thing. You you know, you might have a few really smart people in certain engineering departments, but if you don't have the money, if you don't have the funding, you don't have the time to enact everything that you want to do, then ultimately it's, you're sort of wasting your team's potential, if you like. Um, and I think what's good about the new management structure as well is it seems very very well equipped to say okay this is the direction that modern formula one is going and we're going to follow that rather than going well we're we're williams and we do it our way um you know their way didn't really work for them so especially in well in recent times particularly so you do have to adapt to the demands of formula one as it changes and there seems to be that recognition and um hopefully it will pay off for them Indeed. And Kev, I think, uh, judging by the comments that, that you both have made there, I think we're, we're all pretty much in agreement in that this is this is really the right move for Williams to make it. And also, in a way, it's it's finally joining the modern way of operating a non-works F1 team. Now, I think there's probably a whole other podcast in the sort of whether that's right for Formula One, as opposed to all the teams sort of going, going their own ways. You know, it's quite a debate around that and, and whether that's right for Formula One, but it's certainly effective you look at what Haas did with Ferrari as I say in the piece there's no you know what Williams is doing with Mercedes is to nowhere near the same extent as that but it worked Haas turned up as a new team and immediately scored points and how how often can you say that in the last you know 10-15 years of Formula 1 when new teams have rocked up it just it just doesn't happen Racing Point you know closely aligned with Mercedes worked did very very well last year okay yeah bit different in that case as well because they 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 took an entire mercedes design essentially and made their own version of it and of course it was going to work because the mercedes one was so brilliant but 
you know, it just it, it, it is the right move for Williams. What it's doing with taking these uh, the, these uh, non-transferable, or sorry, these transferable components from Mercedes on the racing point um, uh, part. There, remember, even as Force India before that, they had a good collaboration with. Well, going back even further with McLaren and then Mercedes as they as they came up the grid and they were very pragmatic about well we've only got these amount of resources these are the bits we can get this is what we're going to optimize and they've long been uh, renowned in the paddock for punching above their weight um, because they've taken that route um, and as I say Williams have been very wanting to stick to doing their own thing and being independent um, and I, I think everyone respects that but it's just not it's just not the efficient way like Jake says it's not the efficient way of doing it Maybe if they had endless amounts of resources and money, they could pursue that. You know, when they were pursuing traction control and active suspension, all these things in the 80s and 90s, and they had enough resources to do those all those independent things, um, then it made sense. Um, but now there aren't those big jumps to be found and they don't have the money to do it. So it, I think this is the right, the right approach. Really, the only downside I can think of at Williams at the moment um, is what happens on their driver front after 2021. Because at the moment, the other bonus they've got coming into this year is that they're a back-end team with a front-running driver. So they've got none of this. It's a little bit like when McLaren fell off the perch. They still had Alonso. So whatever happened with the car, he would put it where it should be. Um, and that gave them a very good... Well, we haven't got any excuses... Um, and Russell will give them that again this year. But what happens after that? You know, you're going to have. You don't want to end up with a sort of a Stroll Sorokin style lineup again, or or Huss this year. Huss aren't really going to know where they're at because Mick Schumacher and and Mazepan are both rookies. So I think that that's quite a key thing that happens in longer term is who Williams get on board uh, um, on the driver front. But of course, you know, unless Lewis Hamilton suddenly decides to retire and George Russell finds himself alongside Bottas this year, which I don't think we think is going to happen then they've got at least one year not to have to worry about that. Indeed, well, Kev, you, you've delightfully skipped forward to the sort of debate that I wanted to end our opening part, the part of this podcast on. So maybe we'll come back to George Russell at the end because that, that's what I did in the feature. I spoke to, to Russell as well just before the end of 2020 and you got some really interesting uh, thoughts from him about how he sees Williams performing. So we'll come we'll come on to, to that at the very end and, and look forward to what Williams might do should he be off at the end of 2021 or indeed should the shock happen and, and Lewis Hamilton suddenly decides he's not going to race for Mercedes. Um, but Jake, I did just want to ask one last question about the sort of the 2020 performance of the, of the Williams car and I said at the beginning that in terms of the ultimate pace they, they finished ahead of Haas in the team's averages they went from being at 104.301% of the ultimate pace in 2019 to 102.831% in 2020 so a, a big gain there we look at the super times calculation based on you know the fastest number of laps per weekend but the comparison to Haas and the performance that Williams did in terms of racing that team and Alfa Romeo at times the flip side of that is that both of those teams were really hamstrung by the Ferrari engine deficit. And also Haas really didn't develop its car at all last year. So while Williams definitely did well to make progress, is there an argument to be made that other the, the teams around them at the back of the grid didn't make progress? Well, Haas also had a bit of a iffy car in 2019 as well, and they did have the Ferrari engine then. So ultimately, we expect the Ferrari power unit to get better um they put a lot of work into it just to make sure that it's not you know at the, at the level it was in 2020 that it it's going to deliver um and, and williams will need to be aware of that i'm sure um you would hope that the the doralton takeover and realignment of the team if you like coincided with when they began their development process well i say development process there's not been too much for development process over 
uh, over the off season, but it, it does give them a good chance to just kind of take stock. Twenty to twenty one is not going to be amazing because they're not going to suddenly find an extra second and a half, two seconds out of that car. Um, but there, there does need to be this understanding of just putting the building blocks in place. And I, I, I feel like I'm saying this again, you know, putting things in place for following seasons, but. That, I think that's the situation they're in at the moment. We can't expect a sudden massive turnaround if they end up at the back um, because the Ferrari power unit's better, then that's not, you know, unexpected as such. Um, so, yeah, Williams does need to sort of... I, I think you you alluded to this earlier, that they're not chasing the, the big uh, proclamations of their amazingness. They're not going to do an Adrian Reynard and say, we're going to win our first race. Um they're taking it steadily, and I think they'll do so throughout 2021, um, especially with new aero regulations, new aero testing regulations, budget caps, cost caps, all coming into play properly in effect for 2022. That's where we'll see the rewards and the gains and not necessarily next year. So I'm going to go back to Alex's question slightly as well. And so remember, though, that on the, the super times you mentioned, they are calculated in relation to the fastest teams. So um, that is a genuine gain on where Mercedes were. Now, if you think that Mercedes made one of the biggest leaps at the front, I mean, absolutely remarkable. I do believe the W11 is one of the great Grand Prix cars, whatever happened this season. Um, and it and it did move clear of the front of the field. So for Williams to still take back that amount of gap. Now, okay, the, the 2019 car was the slowest in relative terms, the slowest Williams that they'd ever produced. So they had a lot of gains to, to make. Um, but it is still one of the biggest jumps in performance that Williams have ever managed season on season. Um, so I think that that's got to be, yeah, that's 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 got to be good, hasn't it? Um, I think like most of the teams that aren't called Mercedes or Red Bull, they're looking to twenty twenty two. We're all looking to twenty twenty two and hoping that all the teams on the field in the field are going to be competing for wins. But at least Williams are heading in the right direction. Absolutely. Um, but another sort of interesting uh, part of the feature and part of my chat with Simon Roberts was, was I think it was a message he was quite keen to get out there in that, yeah, a lot has changed at Williams, a lot is changing at Williams and they're hiring people, they're not having to do what the bigger teams are doing and, and massively downsize because, as, as you said, Kev, they are, they're operating, they were already operating well within the budget cap. In fact, they're probably going to, their budget will go up to meet the, the, the cap as opposed to have to drastically come down. But a key, a key aspect that he was sort of um, trying to get across was that they, they don't want to lose what made Williams so special, that team spirit, that famous sort of family, the, the garagista heritage that it had. So I just wanted, Kev, could you sort of explain why they're so keen that that, that that stays about, what made it so special to Formula One that that's what Williams was all about? Yeah, well, I think every company, especially the sort of famous, successful ones, kind of develop their own culture, don't they? I think that the Mercedes one, for example, is a very open, no-blame culture. And that's really one of the reasons why they've been able to push forward. And the, and the Williams one was always, you know, the, the word that keeps coming to my mind is, is fiercely independent. You know, we're doing it our own way. Um, that did catch Patrick Head and Frank Williams out sometimes. You know, they didn't want to take on, you know, Satori Nakajima for 88. Well, that's one of the factors behind why they lost the Honda engines for 88, and they then had a had to rebuild with Renault. Obviously, they didn't quite give Adrian Newey what he wanted, so he he went his own way. So it did have its drawbacks, even when they were they were winning. But there's still a, a feeling that I think we all like the idea of a team doing its own thing rather than taking parts from other teams. So you kind of want to maintain that sort of compare it competitive, independent spirit 
Um, but maybe just apply it in slightly different areas. You know, when Williams were winning, I think they were appalling at pit stops. You know, wheels falling off slow. They were almost always beaten by McLaren. It's quite frustrating. Um, but they could make up for it because the cars are so quick. Whereas uh, actually, they worked really hard over the last few years on improving their pit stops, and now they're one of the they're one of the better teams, even though that they've been they sometimes not really had anyone to race. It's just between the two cars. So, you know, it's just redirecting that kind of. You know, competitive spirit which all, all the teams have um, into different avenues um, so it's, it's fresh thinking but with the, the same sort of team camaraderie that, that, that they've always had Indeed well I remember when uh, when the announcement was made that it was from the start of 2022 that the, the close collaboration with Mercedes is going to come where they're going to start taking gearboxes and those hydraulic components and um, at the time that was announced our colleague at motorsport.com Jonathan Noble wrote a column just explaining what a big deal this was for Williams and it was interesting his, his opening uh, his hook was that uh, suggesting that Williams is every F1 fan's second favourite team uh, so I wondered Jake whether you agreed with that suggestion is Williams every F1 fan's second favourite team? In your opinion, what uh, am I speaking for myself here, or on no, behalf I, I of every F one fan? I want you to canvas the opinion of every F one fan and uh, give me an answer for the podcast, please. In modern days, yes, because everyone wants to see them do well, and we've talked about their heritage and their pedigree and their spirit, and we all want to see a return of that. Um, are they definitively everyone's second favourite team? I mean, I, I guess so at this point in time, yeah. Probably when, if they start winning again, I think that will change massively. It's kind of like how back in the day, Minardi was everyone's second favourite team because on that one day a year when they scored points, everyone was in raptures. And I think we're all willing Williams on to break their duck. They've, in the last two seasons, they've scored one point and no points. And I think we want to see more than that. Um we want to see 10 genuinely competitive teams. But I think Williams ha- does have this special place in people's hearts where they've got all of this success and they've brought through fantastic drivers. They've won championship with Nigel Mansell, with Alain Prost, um, with, with Alan Jones um, and and others. And I think this is something that we sort of claw onto. Uh, it's They hark back to the what we might call the glory days of F1, um, I guess, where where they were successful. Um, and, and we want to see them do well again. That's the bottom line. Yeah, so that's a very good answer for me putting you in an impossible position there, Jake. So well done. I pontificated a lot, I'm sorry. No, no, that, was, that was excellent, uh, excellent thinking on your feet there. But uh, yeah, I, also mainly because what with Formula One and the internet and, and the, the, the tribal toxicity that that means, you know, I don't know if anybody has a second favourite team uh, these days, although I'm sure every every sensible Formula One fan sh- surely does, but it doesn't have to be Williams. It could be whoever you like, but just uh, don't get quite so angry about it on the internet is what I'm getting at. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll start wittering on about, about things that bother me uh, unnecessarily uh kev the williams family as i said um first time the team goes into a new year without them first time in 44 seasons do you think formula one will miss the williams family itself yes i think so um although you know they've got still got the williams heritage you know i'm, I'm sure we haven't heard the last of the williams family um but yes i, I think when anyone when when any, any one person or group of people that have had such a big impact on on the sport for such a long time um, leaves, um, then yes, you you you, uh, you miss them. Um, but as we t- discussed, when Fernando Alonso left the first time uh, from Formula One, you know, the, the quickly things move on, and it's you know, if Williams move up the grid and start scoring the sort of success that you know Sir Frank Williams um, always wanted and has enjoyed in the past, then you know, I think everyone would be 
yeah, it would be happy. So it'll be um, sort of um, not nice, nice to remember. But I, I think um, I think onward is probably the the messaging really. And that's a good a good way to come to the the, the last bit that I wanted just to chat about. We we spoke earlier about about George Russell. You know, he's a he's a massive asset at the Williams team, as you said, Kev. You know, really really top top rated driver showed exactly what he could do and given the chance in the Mercedes uh, back at the Sakir Grand Prix and and probably could have won that race twice ended up losing it obviously with the puncture and that that disastrous pit stop but it was really interesting speaking to him I mean I canvassed him on on, on a lot of a lot of things about his own performance across the year what you know what it felt like how he was coming to terms with uh, losing that that race and but also just 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 asking you know what it's been like to work at Williams during a very difficult time in the team's history and how it's changed and, and as I said at the very beginning of the podcast, n- noting that it had turned a corner with the the, uh, the 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 FW43 and its performance in testing last year, and what, uh, what one one thing he he said that really really struck me, and I included it in the feature for the magazine, was that he thinks because having spoken to all the people that he works with now, he thinks the team is better than it was in 2014 and 2015 when it was finishing third in the Constructors' Championship. It was riding high on the crest of the wave with the Mercedes uh, hybrid power units that obviously were taking the works team to the start of its amazing one of success. So I'm going to I'm gonna ask you both the same question and maybe we'll, we'll come to, to Jake first to put him on the spot again, but only because Kev was, uh, has just finished speaking. Um, do you think he's right? Is, is Russell right? Is Williams a better team than it was uh, six or seven years ago? I think they certainly have a lot more hunger than they perhaps did six or seven years ago. They're, they've been at the bottom of the barrel for a while and there's this desire to get back up back up the order and that counts for a lot when you're perhaps a little bit less less hungry to do that well, less maybe a little bit complacent. Uh, there is it, Things tend to slide a little bit and that's how we sort of ended up in this situation where things year on year just sort of Dra- gradually slipped and slipped and slipped until you know you get to 2018 and you know Williams aren't Williams are on this sort of like bad path if you like um I think there's a couple of examples from around 2014-15 as well when they had a brilliant car um you know how much of it was down to the power unit is up to you but you know it was a car that could probably should have won at least one or two races and they had I think the best chance of that was at Silverstone and the team just played it a little bit too conservatively and there wasn't this hunger to go out and win and grab that race and win it um uh, and perhaps maybe that is perhaps the bad aspect of you know Williams's old ways was it was a little bit too much for a, a conservative team in many respects after all of these years of innovation um they just wanted to sort of consolidate what they had and now there seems to be this impetus this oomph in the team where they want to go places and they just need to get something out of either this car or the next car and won't let that slide so i think in terms of that yes definitely Uh, and in russell as you've mentioned they've got such a good asset um he he's proven what he can do um i think anyone who's seen him race in the junior series has, has seen that anyway so yeah phenomenal asset 
Indeed. Well, just 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 want to point out two things before uh, Kev gives his answer. I think Jake, based on what you said there, I think once again it reinforces what a good job Mercedes are doing because it's been winning for year after year after year, and there's been no complacency. It just again, it just highlights. Yeah, okay, they've, they've got a, had a tremendous amount of resources. They've got some, you know, hired a whole bunch of incredibly capable people, but they're still delivering, and that again, I think is is worth acknowledging. And um, but also that that, that was you, you also hit on on a point Russell was making, which was basically things have been so painful at Williams that it has made them a better team the lessons that they're learning at the back of the grid not only does it provide drive to escape that position but also when they are further up in theory it will serve them better and um, but yeah Kev do you, do you agree with what, what Russell was saying about Williams being a better team now than it was uh, at the start of the hybrid era yes absolutely and I'll quote Mark Williams the ex-McLaren designer who occasionally appears on the Your Sport podcast as well and he says the only thing you learn uh, when you're winning is how to smile you learn a lot more when you're making mistakes and producing bad cars, trying to make up for bad cars, um, recovering from bad cars. You know, I think that they will be, they'll know themselves better, they know the cars better. Remember, that 2014-15 period was all about the Merck engine, really, um, and, and and Renault and Ferrari being so far off it in the early days of the turbo hybrid. So it artificially boosted Williams up the grid, and they slipped back pretty quickly, actually. Um, yeah, if you look at the Super Times, you know, there's a graph in the magazine as well. Like they fall off away from that pretty fast as soon as everyone else gets their act together. So I think that they're where they are now is an honest position. You know, they've got a Mercedes power plant, so they know that that's not the you know, a little bit like when McLaren was blaming Honda and then found with the Renault they weren't any more competitive. They actually had to really dig down and work out what it was that was wrong and how to fix it. And, you know, Williams are a few years behind McLaren in that recovery process. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure that they're, you know, they're, they must be a better team now than they were then. Indeed. Well, the, sort of the last question I wanted to ask you guys was to look forward to 2022. As you said, Kev, so many teams are targeting that moment as a chance to vastly improve their fortunes, to get up the grid, hopefully uh, get up to Mercedes level or, or even surpass it. Um, but a big aspect of that, with Williams and its future is what will happen to Russell as we said he's, he's, a, he's a big asset to that team but there's you know judging by what happened in Secure, judging by the fact that Mercedes has invested so much in him in terms of getting him to Formula 1 the success he had in the junior formulas the performances he's been producing it isn't it wouldn't be illogical to expect him to move to Mercedes for 2022 now of course the team Mercedes itself is not going to say that that's happening at this stage Russell's still got his third year of his Williams contract to go um and and you know the, the Valtteri Bottas is a, is an excellent driver and and also that's that's making an assumption that it's going to be Bottas that would make way as opposed to Lewis Hamilton we don't know where the opportunity w- would come at this stage but basically it's highly likely that Russell that finishes his third year with Williams and goes on to Mercedes. So if we take that assumption as, as what's going to happen, and of course, as I say, entirely theoretical at this point, what Williams does next is a really key indication of where Doralton Capital, what, what it wants to do effectively, because it's got Nicholas Latifi, who is a very capable driver, comes with a lot of backing and that backing, uh, you know, comes from, from, from his family and, and the companies that they have and those companies make up a lot of the sponsorship on the Williams car. The team talks about that. I think Simon Roberts mentions it in, in the feature, you know, that, that, that it's bringing more sponsors and more um, money into the team that way is, is a key target for them. But there is, the, the, you know, the other way, as you say, said get earlier, Kev, they could do what they did before when they had Lance Stroll and Sergei Sorokin in the team and you have two well-funded drivers. But, you know, everybody, every Formula One fan, Formula One observers, you know, that's the sort of, it's not a very aspirational 
way of doing things it's a it's a yeah we're doing this to survive and and not necessarily make up the numbers but it's an understandable position to take but it's not it's not the sign of a team that really wants to go somewhere so it'll be really interesting to see what Doralton do when it comes to 2022 if I say if Russell leaves so Kev what would you who would you like to see them get in because there are drivers that potentially could fill both boxes you know Sergio Perez unless he somehow beats Max Verstappen at Red Bull is already linked with Williams there were suggestions I think there was a that it sort of later came out that it was more sort of saber rattling from various camps trying to get better positions elsewhere and that Russell's seat for 2021 was never under threat but who who would you go for if you were Williams in that in that position that theoretical position First of all, I completely agree that there. I'd be absolutely amazed if George Russell was a Williams drive in 2022. I can't, you know, you normally get one a megastar in a, a sort of back end team for one year. You know, Alonso at Minardi, Leclerc at Sauber slash Alfa Romeo. So to get three years of George, I think is you know is, is, is impressive. They won't get a fourth. I wouldn't have thought. And I think the answer to your absolutely, they should go for the best person available. Um, to make that statement of intent. You know, you can probably, when you're towards the back, you can get away with one. Make weight driver sounds a bit harsh, but one of the sorts of drivers that you talked about. But if you've got any sort of aspirations to move forward, you need to be getting a driver who's operated at least one level ahead of where you're at to show where you want to go. You know, it's like Daniel Ricciardo going to Renault. You know, Renault went out and got him because that was their, their statement, really. So I think it's whoever is the best available. So it might be Perez. It might be Bottas. Let's say that you know he could, he could end up back at back at Williams. Then we can ask him whether it's a better team than it was in 2014. Um, but you know, if it, it, you know, if Lewis Hamilton retires, then obviously Bottas will stay, and Russell will join him. If Hamilton decides that he wants to win 158 million races and 12 world championships, he'll carry on. Bottas will will go, and they'll bring in Russell. And I think they could do a lot worse than Bottas. You know, the amount of experience. You know, he's a fraction off Lewis Hamilton. He's got an awful lot of experience. He knows the team from before. He would be quite a sensible sensible choice, I would say, if he was available, assuming that another team didn't snap him up. Um, Perez would be another good choice if, if Red Bull didn't hold on to him. I mean, you could also look at someone like Nico Hulkenberg, who's proven at, at, at that midfield level, doesn't have the experience of running at the front, and by then, of course, will have been out of F1 yet another year, assuming he doesn't get another cameo appearance in, in 2021. So I think it's less about who it is and more about it should be the best driver they can get at that moment. Absolutely. Well, Jake, I sort of I wanted to ask you a slightly different spin on that sort of question and ask you specifically about Nicholas Latifi, because I know that uh, in your in your previous uh, uh, work in your career, you guys worked together in Formula Two. Um, so what kind of driver is Latifi? And, you know, he's got a second year in Formula One coming up. Equally, he could be wanting to be on the move at the end of next season. I mean, you just never know what's going to happen. But what does he bring to the team and, and, and how much potential has he got? I think, first of all, let me suggest, uh, well, let me say that Nicholas Latifi is a very, very underrated driver. Um, he has this pay driver tag, and that is understandable. He's bringing a lot of money to the team. And his past junior results haven't been earth-scorchingly good. But, as Kev says, he's very, very capable. He's kept, he's not out-qualified George Russell, but he's he's been within that sort of frame of, what you would expect a sort of number two driver to be in. And that's reassuring, I think, for him. And it's his first year as well. Um, he's done a very, very good job. He's not got himself into any trouble. He's not got himself into any scrapes. He's just done a very clean, very solid, very good job. And he just needs to kick on from that and, and, and move forward. Um, when I 
this was towards the end of 2019 actually and Robert Kubitz was leaving the team and I was speaking to Dave Robson at Abu Dhabi and I asked him what does what does Nicky bring to the team um and he sort of like lit up like there was this sort of weird cloud that Kubitz had brought over the team and it was this weird untenable relationship between two sort of very differently uh two parties of very different opinions he says well Nicky just lights up the garage he makes people kind of feel wanted and and they're ready to work around him and he's not someone that you would ever consider like a ruthless driver or anything like that but he just seems has this way with people and he sort of gets them to to work with him and he's he's very very affable in that sense I think if we're looking ahead for 2022 obviously we expect Williams to you know, try and get the best drivers available, whoever that may be. Um, I'm sure the driver market will be interesting to see. You know, I th- I think a lot of it's going to hinge on what whatever Pierre Gasly decides to do. Funnily enough, because um, you know there there have been rumours that Alpine want him, and what would that do for Ocon or Alonso or God knows what, and all of these knock on effects. But I think Williams could do a lot worse than than in keeping him on. Um, just for just for the continuity, because they'll have to if Russell comes, well, Russell goes. Um, they have to bring someone new in um, and it might help to have that continuity or they could just get an experienced driver and a new youngling from F2, um, you know, your your Schwartzmans or your Lundgaards or whoever's not affiliated with a junior team and and go there. Um, so there's a lot to consider, certainly over the next year or so. Definitely. It was also interesting, uh, Dave Robson suggested to me that Latifi is such a nice guy. Sometimes it surprises them when, you know, that, that sort of ruthless, steely racing driver is is underneath. So I think that, that shows you uh, what kind of a what kind of a driver he is around Williams. But we should move on to the to the next bit of the podcast, which is to look at the uh, the 10 best Williams Formula 1 cars ever produced, as decided by Kevin Turner, very undemocratically, which is unusual for you, Kev. But you are you are quite good at this sort of thing in that, you know, you decide to, to make a lot of lists and, and they are very enjoyable and you always have a good reason for putting things in the order that they are. We should point out that in the magazine this week, it's only the top five, whereas on the podcast, we are going to do the full top 10. So first question to you before we run through the list is, is how enjoyable was it putting this one together? Oh, yeah, these lists are all, as you say, I, I love doing a good list. Um, when I've got time off, invariably after a couple of days, I get my notepad out and just start doing any top 10 that comes to my mind, which is the fun bit. And then the harder bit is then going away and researching it and reading and watching tapes and sometimes speaking to people involved to see if what you kind of remember was correct. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Um, but yeah, so, some of the lists are quite, quite hard to do but I didn't find this one too bad actually the, the Williams one I'm now looking and waiting for JBL to rip it to pieces once we get into the 10 uh, but yeah I thought that this one by and large was, was fairly logical Okay, I think asking my opinions for anything is is, is pointless so I'm not going to do any ripping apart of said list well, you say that. <laughs> no, no, disagree if you want to that's fine. You say that now, we'll wait till we, until we get into it, there might be some proper uh, anger and some outrageous puns no doubt anyway um number 10 it's the williams ford fw06 uh used in 1978 1979 didn't win any races titles uh but it was of course the first car that williams produced itself in formula one so kev why is the fw06 at number 10 yeah, so whenever I put this, these lists together, there's always a, a sort of number of, of different criteria to consider. One is obviously how successful it is, uh, a car is, another is how innovative, and another is how significant it is for that for that team or category. Uh, and obviously the FWI6 is 
very significant as being you know the sort of genesis if you like of, of the relationship between Frank Williams and Patrick Head um, it was a very neat car and actually a little while two or three years ago I did a list on the of the best F1 cars that didn't win a world championship race and this was on it and it wasn't outrageously fast but it, it was uh, quite conventional but it did have it did show flashes of pace um, it was good enough for Alan Jones to show uh, well the team actually to show um, you know Frank and Patrick that he had something about him you know charging driver at Long Beach um, it's probably a little bit unfortunate not to win not to win a race um, uh, and it was just a very solid you know solid start for a, a you know a fledgling team I think Patrick Head, um, who we talked to for that particular piece, did say, you know, at that point we had a small staff and we didn't have the uh, systems in place for quality control and reliability. So the car did break down more often than it should have done. But then you could say that about most of the cars in that period. Um, so, yeah, just a good, a good straightforward design to get the to get the ball rolling and get their sort of foot in the door before they then um, improved things somewhat. Jake, do you agree with, uh, first of all, the positioning at number 10 or anything particularly uh, noteworthy technically about the FWA6 that, we, that Cav hasn't covered? No, I think I think I agree with that. Um, it was a very, very strong car to kick off with. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that, obviously, Frank Williams racing cars had been around before that as sort of like a, a private entrant taking on, you know, marches and other chassis like that. And I think over time, Williams sort of realised, okay, these are the sort of shortfalls of the cars that we could buy in. And if we do it ourselves, this is what we would want. Um, They'd raced previously with an updated march, which which was the uh, FWO4. Um, And I think Patrick had said, okay, this is not still not great if we we're going to do this from scratch this is what we would want and then yeah obviously you end up with the the fwo6 and yeah it kicked everything off it began williams's very very successful beginnings uh, as as the team they are today indeed we probably should have got Stuart codling on this podcast only just to add his uh, patrick head impression which i always enjoy hearing but there we go we'll move on to number nine on the list it's the williams honda fw10 used in 1985 won four races no titles but of course famous uh, for keki rosberg's pole position lap at silverstone set with a slow puncture that would stand as f1's fastest pole for 17 years so kev why is that number nine on your list well, that 160 mile an hour lap has to, you know, there's got to be a sort of fever X factor involved in these lists as well. And that's just incredibly cool, isn't it? I think Keke Rosberg's got to be one of the coolest F1 drivers ever. You know, rags, rags 160 mile an hour lap round Silverstone, quicker than his team at Anarja Mandels, who, as we'll come to later on this list, was quite handy round Silverstone, as it happens. Uh, new record that gets out of the car and lights a fag in the way that those, uh, you know, the, the drivers used to do. Um, but also, you know, they both won races. They were coming from quite a low point. If you think that um, you know, uh, the turbo race had left them behind, Keke had managed to win the 82 championship. And then 83, uh, with everyone else going turbo, Williams had dropped quite a long way behind, got on the Honda, on you know, did the relationship with Honda for 84, and that car was a rather unwieldy, light, classic, cliche, light switch type turbo response. And but they were coming. They were getting better, and '85 was probably the sign that Williams Honda were going to be a threat. Um, first first car for, that Nigel Mansell won a world championship Grand Prix in. Um, yeah, scored scored those four wins uh, and really set them up for the yeah for the next two years. Really, I think that car is certainly it should be in the list 
if not just for Murray Walker's relief that Nigel Mansell won a race. But yeah, that Honda relationship had come a long way. Obviously, Honda had gone into Formula One with the Spirit team, which was a tiny, tiny little, you know, ex-Formula Two team that had, had come up. And Williams had gone, oh, that's, that engine's all right, isn't it? Steely, steely. Um, and uh, it, it kind of set them on the way for their success in the 80s. So that kind of put them in the position where they could progress from there, really. Indeed. Well, number eight is the Williams Renault FW16. Uh, he's the 1994, took seven wins and the Constructors title. But this is obviously quite a, a difficult car in a way to, to discuss obviously it's very sadly the car that Ayrton Senna lost his life in and even at the end of the season as, as you explain in, in, in your uh, in your in your choice here Kev you know a much improved car compared to how it started the year but Damon Hill obviously loses the title in that infamous clash with Michael Schumacher but uh, why have you got it in eighth? This was probably the hardest one actually because it's kind of so emotionally tied up with the whole 1994 season which I'd still argue is one of the worst F1 seasons uh, ever obviously the you know the center accident how much was the car you know completely you know the, the cause etc all that controversy a difficult car to drive um maybe and and jbl perhaps has a, a a view on this maybe it should be the fw16b because they did revise the car quite a lot during the season um you know i think the three poles that senna scored at the start of the year were uh, largely put down to to senna pulling something special out of the out of the bag Whereas obviously, you know, Damon rising to the occasion after Senna's death and the team really developing the car made it a g- more genuinely competitive, I think. And certainly in the second half of the year, there were some performances from where, where Damon performed at the top of his game and really put Marcus Schumacher and Benetton under pressure. And he did win a Constructors' Championship. So um, I felt like it should be included really for, the, for how Williams and, and Damon Hill in particular really responded to the whole Senna situation. Not technically the best car. You know, that was the year that they banned all the gizmos and Williams had gone further down the route with traction control and active suspension than the other teams. So when it t- when it was taken away, it was more problematic for them. So yeah, a bit of a controversial choice, but, you know, he did win seven Grand Prix and a Constructors title and got within one point in a rather cynical piece of driving of winning the Drivers' Championship as well. Absolutely. Jake, what, what, do, you, what do you think about that? I mean, again, it's it's almost like you could say that you know a massive rule change Williams okay they were stumbled a little bit at the beginning but they they really were on song by the end of the season so how much uh, what do you think about the FW16 and the FW16B I think uh, if we might as well class them together it was you know of the same you know ilk if you like um obviously yeah it's very very difficult car to talk about because as Kev mentioned when you go down this route of you know, having the most advanced active suspension systems on the car. Um, you have all of these driver aids, which Williams had been, you know, the ones to pioneer and be at the forefront of in 1992 and 1993. And then suddenly you don't have those toys anymore and you've got to try and reclaim the stability that you once had with without them, without those toys. And you have to remember as well that simulation technology was an anywhere near as advanced as it is today i mean today if you lost them all within a few weeks with a good team you'd expect uh them to have made up the gains in in other in other ways but these cars at the time were very 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 skittish um especially in corners as well because there wasn't this understanding of how to make the aero work you know the whole circuit round and for lots of different situations and so 
there could be a lot of blind spots in your aero maps and things like that where if you had x map steering on you could lose all your downforce and the rear end would snap it was very very easy to do uh, even even in the 90s so that's understandable but as kev mentioned the fact that damon hill was able to get this car into a title fight in we must must not forget that it was his only his second full season as well um and had to take on the entirety of the team um that that deserves some merit too moving on to number seven it's the williams bmw fw25 used in 2003 won four races was no titles in the middle of ferrari's run of domination uh but kev why is that uh, number seven well, I wanted to, to um, show the Williams BMW era in there. I think it needed to be represented. And the, the FW25 was the car that got closest to winning a championship for Williams during that, that era. Um, took four wins. And uh, yeah, there's a quite a big sort of political story behind it as well. In that after the Hungarian Grand Prix where Marcus Schumacher and Ferrari were lapped, um, Mon Pablo Montoya and McLaren's Kimi Raikkonen within two points. I think two points covered the three of them. And Williams had actually taken the lead in the Constructors' Championship. And then we got into the whole situation um, with Ferrari and Bridgestone talking about the Michelin rubber and um, whether they were legal at the end of races. And anyway, the FIA decided to measure the tread and measure the tyres after the race rather than before. And it it caused Michelin to change the way they were doing it. And Sam Michael, who's at Williams at the time, is convinced that that change, not so much the performance problem that it created, but more just adapting to those slightly changed tie regs was enough to throw Williams and McLaren off off the game slightly and Schumacher then nailed the next two races um, and Ferrari and Schumacher obviously went on to win both titles so yeah the Williams BMW F25 was kind of the closest that Williams has come to winning a championship since Adrian Newey left um, so that's why it's there. Well reason Jake uh, what do you look back on the FW25? I don't remember a lot of that season, funnily enough, but what I do remember was Montoya being, he was so hyped up when he came into Formula One as, you know, this kart champion, um, you know, he'd won Formula 3000. And when he came into Formula One, he just had this bullishness about him, just this sort of air of, I I see this sort of a uh, Formula One order and I'm going to come in, I'm going to come and shake it up. And we saw glimpses of that over the previous two seasons, you know, battles with Michael Schumacher and whatnot. This was the first real season where we got a sort of look at what Montoya could do. Um, and then obviously in the other car, Ralph Schumacher was, was all right. Uh, um, but I think that was the the year that Montoya took kind of centre stage and we were like, oh, what's he going to do next? And then it all went downhill from there. So... It's certainly certainly a, a good car for this list. I think it's probably the most recent success. What we might call successful Williams, um, but yeah, no, uh, it's also quite pretty as well. So uh, yeah, let's go with that. Definitely, although it's not as uh, interesting looking, putting it diplomatically, as the car that followed it with the with the Walrus nose in two thousand and four. Uh, but number six on uh, Kev's list is the Williams Renault FW nineteen, which of course the car that Chat Vilna have used uh, to win his title in nineteen ninety seven. I was going to tee up JBL on the question I'm going to ask him, which is Kev, what you sort of ask at the beginning in your feature here is is was this the last great Williams uh, wins eight races, as I said, Villeneuve's uh, title and the Constructors' title as well. So, Kev, why don't you explain why he's at number six, and then JBL can answer if it was the last great Williams wins both championships and eight races. So that's you know puts it firmly onto the list. Um, I think 
hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But I think this year, really, if you look back, there are signs that Williams is heading for some issues in that Adrian Newey leaves. He he has an input in the car, um, but he he leaves before you know before the campaign is is, is sort of done. Um, and they Williams make really heavy weather of winning the championship with this car. Now that's not just the team's fault. There was you know Jacques Villeneuve was made to look silly a few times by Mark Schumacher, but there are also crazy things like starting in the wet on slicks at Monaco. Um, just just not very good strategic uh, decision-making by the team. And, of course, they were going to lose Renault factory engines at the end of the year. So they lost Newey, they lost Renault. They didn't really make the most of the car. They sort of just about got over the line with a car that was actually almost as far ahead on raw pace as last year's Mercedes was over the Red Bull. But it took until the controversial clash at Jerez and, uh, for it to be decided. So it's a, it was a great car that the team probably didn't make the best use of. Uh, would, would perhaps be my summary on that one. And Jake, was it the last great Williams? I think with that championship year, you'd have to classify it as as, as such. Um, as Kev says, yeah, very, very heavy weather of the, the title race in 1997. Um, you know, you would, in on another day, in another universe, Schumacher should have perhaps taken it. Then again, another in another universe, Villeneuve should have walked that title. Um it, it it can go either way, really. Um, it, it's just it did expose some of the operational flaws in Williams. It was the part where everything started to go downhill. We know how terrible 1998 was um, with you know the previous year's engine and losing Newey and all of this, that, and the other. Um, and Villeneuve didn't really have. They didn't really unlock the potential of Heinz Harold Frentzen either. I think he was very incompatible with Williams as a driver and so Villeneuve didn't have perhaps the number two that he wanted as well which you know could have really strengthened their case it should have been you know a repeat of 1996 where Hill and Villeneuve push each other all the way um and so yeah that might be another whether that's down to Frenson or whether that's down to Williams that's uh something you can ask you I'm sure well what's side point to that is I think that if Damon had stayed they'd have won the chance you're more easily I'm not saying that Damon would necessarily have been the one to win the championship but I think that he would have, the, the car would have been in the ballpark more often he had you know more experience uh, and actually probably if Damon had stayed there's a chance that Newey wouldn't have left as well because it was that sort of decision making that really annoyed Adrian and made him go so yeah losing losing Damon which obviously was a decision made before he even won the 96 title I think yeah really sort of set it it was perhaps an understandable decision at that moment, given how bad the season he'd had in '95. But you know, again, with hindsight, I think it was probably the wrong thing to do. Indeed, and also the the question that I threw at Jake of the uh, the last great Williams car, it should be uh, the the most recent great. If we if we're going to give them their uh, their dues as, as oh, their like aim, nice amendment. aim to get back to the front of the grid, you know, you never know. They may never get there. They may they may get there. We shall see what the future holds. But at number five, it's the Williams Honda FW11 and the FW11B used in 1987. The first one used in, in 1986 uh, won 18 races. The drivers' title for Nelson Piquet in '87 and the constructors one constructors' title as well. So, Kev, why is that car and the follow-up at number five? Well, they should have won uh, both championships both years. They won the Constructors title both years. And as you say, Nelson won in 87. I mean, obviously, 86, they famously lost largely because PK and Mance took points off each other. Going back to what we were talking about 
uh, when when Jake was talking about Silverstone uh, with in the Williams Mercedes era, they were reluctant to have team orders. To be fair to them, I think that was partly because of Frank Williams's road accident because he did the deal with with PK. PK believed he was number one. Frank was then taken out of, out of action for a few months, during which time Mansell proved to be irritatingly rapid. Uh, and obviously, the t- your team don't really, especially someone like Patrick Head, doesn't want to slow a driver down. That's not that's not the way they go racing. So, it's like, well, Nelson, if you want to win, you need to beat him. Uh, and of course, they continued doing that, and Alain Prost slipped through and, and beat them. But yeah, the car was the best race car of '86, and it was the best qualifying car and racing car probably of '87. So yeah, it was the zenith of the of the Williams Honda era, really. Um, and I would say probably a car that wins 18 races and three world championships is going to be a it's going to have to be considered a great F1 car by anyone's um, estimation. Indeed. Uh, Jake, would you have had it higher up based on what Kev said, or is, is five about right? I think looking at the other cars on the list, um, I think that's probably where it hits its peak. Uh, obviously, it was you know the best car of its era, but I think the ones we're about to go into, they have just a little bit more about them. Um, so... Yeah, I think I think I'm I'm happy with that. Um, I, I I certainly agree with Kev. Obviously, should have taken one of their drivers to to the 86 crown. Um, if Mansell hadn't colossally had a blowout in in Adelaide, then it could have been his. Um, but you know, again, different universe, different day. Whatever, whatever you want to say. Indeed, indeed. Well, number four is the Williams Ford FW07 and the various situations of that car used between 1979 and 1982. Took 15 wins, uh, one driver's title for Alan Jones in 1980 and two constructor's titles in 1980 and 1981. So, Kev, why is that number four on your list? Well, several reasons, really. One is the, I guess, fairly obvious point that it is the the first Williams, to, well, it's the first Williams to win a World Championship Grand Prix. Uh, with Clay Regazzoni at Silverstone 1979, then it's the first to win uh, win the World Championship. Um, you had a very successful car over a long period of time, 15 World Championship wins. Alan Jones would very much argue that the Spanish Grand Prix that was taken away from him uh, in terms of not, not being eligible for points should be added to that as well. Um, and Jones is a key person in the Williams story as well. You know, I think that the, some of the troubles that people like Frensen have later on is that Alan Jones is a really no-nonsense, get-on-with-it, uh, elbows out racing driver which Patrick and Frank really enjoyed working with uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence that probably your two your two best Williams drivers a different debate of Alan Jones and Nigel Mann so they've got quite a similar kind of real racers uh, edge to them um, and yeah the FW7 Jones probably should have won the 81 title as well um, to be honest he was a little bit unfortunate and Carlos Reutemann who was actually then Williams uh, leader in the points just was absent without leave in the final round and let Nelson Piquet beat him to the to the championship. Um, and the, I'm sure JBL, we've, we've talked about this before, the FW07 is really the car that Lotus should have made, the Lotus 79 Grand Effects car the year before. Uh, and Patrick had looked at it and going, well, I'm going to make that, but I'm going to make it stiffer and make more downforce. And uh, and that's what he did because very pragmatic and sensible. And Colin Chapman, who was very innovative and always looking for the next big thing, tried to make a car entirely an upside down wing, which did not work. It was definitely the car the loser should have been. Um, if if Colin Chapman could have stuck at it a little bit more and worked on that load to seventy nine, then it would be, have been phenomenal. But he he just didn't he didn't think like that for for better or for worse. Um, I. I 
want to contend a little bit with the the AC1 finale. Uh, I don't think Reutemann was entirely absent with that leave. He'd lost, I think, I think he was stuck in fourth gear actually throughout the Caesars Palace race. Um, and he ended up the season just one point behind uh, Nelson Piquet. So oh, I, don't, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I really don't. Also, he, he even really conceded the championship mentally when he was still ahead in like Germany or British Grand Prix. Very odd. Very odd season campaign and worthy of its own podcast, probably. I think I think the Caesars Palace circuit should also get one just for how dreadful it was as a circuit. Yes, uh, that I do agree with. <laughs> but, Awful. But um, yeah, no, it should have won more than one driver's title. That it did is, is testament to you know it's class as a car but it should yeah should have perhaps done a little bit more um see but it that was uh williams first crowning success um and it was a phenomenal car and certainly deserves to be at this lofty spot on the list indeed well after i've uh, jotted down some uh, some new ideas for for forthcoming podcasts no doubt let's move on to number three which is actually my favorite car on this list it's the williams renault fw18 used in 1996 took 12 wins obviously damon hill's driver's title and the constructors title as well and kev as you say in your piece in terms of strike rate the 1996 FW18 is the greatest Williams. It scores 12 wins from 16 races and only Michael Schumacher in the Ferrari uh, is the only other driver to get a pole apart from the two Williams drivers. So why is it number three? Um, yeah, I suppose I'm almost at the point now where I need to justify not why I haven't put them high. Like the, uh, the strike rate, I mean, it only really lost due to you know, the four races it lost. One was an engine failure for Damien when he was absolutely miles ahead in Monaco and the other three were, uh, I, I guess, different flavours of Michael Schumacher genius really at Ferrari. Otherwise, it was the dominant car. I think the reason I haven't put it higher is uh, a couple of reasons, really. One, I just don't find it quite as cool as the two cars ahead of it on the list, but I appreciate that's a subjective thing. I think another thing is it's not particularly innovative. There's nothing about it that, that you go, right, that changed the game. It was just a, a much better package than than other teams at the time had. You know, Benetton had a good car, but Alessian Berger couldn't get out of it what Schumacher had done the year before. Schumacher was in the process of rebuilding Ferrari. So it probably had a slightly weaker uh, opposition than some of the other the other cars on this list. Um, but but I wanted it up high because partly because of the strike rate and partly because I think it's a bit of a forgotten car. Sometimes you know it was a genuinely you know brilliant F one machine. And Jake, um, would you have it around there? And do you agree with what Kev said about it's not particularly innovative, but nevertheless still a you know tremendously successful car? Yeah, it was just I think it was taking on a lot of the key hallmarks of the 95 car and just making it better in every way. Um, 95 was a particularly difficult season for Williams because Hill and Williams were sort of brought together by this loss of Senna and them realising they have to sort of coalesce and work together. Um, and that brought them into the title fight. But then they'd had this year off and Williams's sort of belief in Hill was wasn't quite there to the the extent that that Damon wanted, and things became a little bit strained. And so, nineteen ninety six comes along. Hill's given a big boot up the ass by by Villeneuve coming in. Uh, the cars made better, um, stronger, faster, and it, it blitz it blitz the season really, uh, as as Kev mentioned. Apart from Schumacher's wins and uh, Olivier Panis in in Monaco, um, you know they walked the season, and yeah, it was just it was just it's just phenomenal. It's just a car done right, done successfully, um, and it's something that Williams hasn't unfortunately been able to do since really. 
I think it's Damon's favourite Williams as well. I think he actually was the first one that hit, that properly fitted him. Um, so yeah, it was just lots of. I, I think JB was right. It was everything coming together and just being right. There was there was no. It didn't have any vices really. Indeed, and another tremendously successful Williams. And in fact, uh, the number two car on this list, Kev, as you point out, is the most dominant uh, Williams of all time in terms of its pace. And that's the Williams Renault FW15C from 1993. Took 10 wins. Of course, Alain Prost to the driver's title and the constructor's title that year as well. Why have you got it at two and not number one? Well, perhaps we should do the top two cars together. Um, so I'll cover off my thinking and then throw to uh, throw to Jake uh, and then perhaps you as well, Alex. Although you've already said that you prefer the '96 car, so yeah. That's, so, that's certainly, I, I count myself yes. out there. But yeah, okay. Then in that case, I'll, I'll say that I'll reveal the number one, which I'm sure as many listeners have been able to work out, is the Williams Renault FW14B of 1992. Ten victories. Nigel Mansell's world title and the constructors' title. But why don't you explain why you've got them in the particular order that you have, Kev? Sure. This one was this was the the, and the other tricky part of the list. Um, when we've done previous podcasts on the great F1 cars and great Grand Prix cars, we did two separate ones. We rather hedged our bets, and in one we picked the 14B, and the other one we picked the 15C to have as the debate. So I thought we really have to decide between the two of them. So they both win ten races. The Williams actually, as you say, the FW15C has the biggest, not just the most dominant margin on pace uh, of Williams history, but of any F1 car outside of the 50s the top three are all 50s cars where the gaps are much bigger anyway so truly phenomenal pace advantage um which i think it's probably not made the most of uh, during the season which we've you know we've mentioned already but the reason i put the 14b ahead partly is because that's the car that actually brings in the innovation uh the active suspension uh, and the traction control whereas the 15c sort of perfects it if you like um so i was giving bonus points for the sort of bringing it in the pioneering element Secondly, uh, I just think it looks cooler. I just think that the slightly wider rear tyres are better. Uh, and I think the you know, red five on the front makes it look cooler as well. And as an economist side, although I would have Alain Prost ahead of Nigel Mansell on my list of all-time greatest F1 drivers, if I was doing greatest Williams drivers, I'd have Mansell ahead. Uh, and I think that if Mansell had been in the 93 Williams as he had originally wanted to be, I think he would have probably thrash the field in a similar way to the way he had done the year before and I don't think Senna would have been able to score some of those heroic victories from McLaren that sort of slipped through the fingers of, of Prost and, and Damon Hill who was in his first full season F1 so I don't think you can really blame him um, so yeah so basically more innovative and cooler are my two main elements so Jake are you going to stick them the other way around? Uh, firstly I'd like to say by uh, say that off air Kev said it was also down to the Sega logo on the 93 car uh, I wasn't a particular fan oh, of that well I can't <laughs> cover that off with the livery really I mean I just come on the Sonic the Hedgehog feet no 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 <laughs> it was quite a good comedy but I thought the 92 car the livery was, was, was nicer but I think I will not say too many words about this uh, I'm not going to disagree with the order the FW14B up there Nigel Mansell, Silverstone, 1992. Pole by two seconds. Beat Ayrton Senna by 2.7 seconds. Now I'm just going to scroll down to the race. Uh, Nigel Mansell beat Riccardo Patrese by 40 seconds in that race and faster than Martin Brundle by 48 seconds. So that is a whitewash. In, and there were many more like it, if not better. But that is the one example I choose. Um, phenomenal car, phenomenal engineering. Number one. Boom. 
I, I think I think I don't know if you got the stat there, but I've got a feeling that Mounts will cross the line three point one seconds clear of the field at the end of lap one on that. I've got a feeling it was something absolutely ludicrous. Are you able to call that up? Uh, I don't have it on me at the moment, but I, it sounds good, and I'm going to go with I'm it. Gonna, I'm going to, I'm going to, well, you talk among yourselves, and I'm going to have a quick look to make sure I'm not making it up and mislead. I don't want to uh, mislead the listeners, uh, but I think it was something ridiculous like that. As, as we're having some fever about Silverstone 1992, which frankly was a terrible race at the front because <laughs> Mansell cleared off into the distance. Let me just see. I'm going to Forex on allsport.com, which is an excellent resource. It was 3.3 seconds Ooh. clear of Patrese at the end of the first lap. So even more. Goodness me. Uh, but yeah, Jake, any, any any ones that you would have picked out? Well, I want to ask Kev a question quickly, if I may. Uh, sorry to stamp on hosting duties for a moment here, but I have an important question. As long as the question Kev. is, why is the light in his room so dark? Yeah, I'm disappearing <laughs> into a, a black hole, I can see. I'll turn the light on when we're finished, don't worry. Kev, if the FW34 had had better drivers in it, would that have been a contender for this list? Mm, that is a good question uh i'm not sure whether it was good enough to really okay so we i mean first of all it's hideously ugly let's be let's be honest all those cars so that's the 2012 car isn't it that is the 2012 uh, the car that pastor maldonado uh, in a somehow a parallel universe slipped into our reality for a weekend and pastor maldonado is able to beat fernando alonso to a grand prix win uh which remains one of the just the most ridiculous races i think i've ever seen um no, is the answer. I think it would have scored more points. I think if you'd had a Rubens Barrichello in it, I think it would have would have been a good point score and finished higher up the higher up the championship table. It had um, Maldonado who was quick and then found something solid to hit. Sometimes another car, sometimes some scenery, and Bruno Senna who couldn't qualify. So even though his race pace wasn't bad, he was always coming from too far behind. So yes, I think the Williams FW thirty four should have done better than it did, but I don't think I'd have it would have knocked any of the cars that i've got here off the list and also just so hideously 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 ugly no car that ugly should be on a top 10 list um other than i think it was in my uh uh, top 10 worst cars to win a grand prix (laughs) partly because it was so ugly now you've reminded me the only car that i i really i think we probably should mention that didn't make the list um was the FW08, which obviously followed on from the 7 and which did win the championship with Keke Rosberg. And I think I'm right in saying it was designed as a six-wheeler to start with, uh, which would have been a really cool. It's a real shame we didn't get to see the the, the, the six-wheeled Williams. But, um, yeah, that didn't quite make it because, obviously, it won its championship in that ridiculous 1982 season where lots and lots of things happened and the storylines elsewhere were, I think, what were what dictated that particular title. And, of course, Rosberg's own driving rather than the car itself. Indeed. Well, guys, what a comprehensive, detailed uh, discussion, debate, and excellent podcast I think we've produced. Um, we'd better let Kev go and turn the lights on in, in his room, vision from the view you can see on the Zoom <laughs> uh, call. You yes, know you're underwater. Why are you in the light? I feel like I'm see, disappearing I, I, into a... I turned a light on before we started recording as the darkness, the January no, darkness I think that's probably in. it. You see, this is why I'm not the technical editor. So you put the hit the nail on the head there. You've turned on a light, <laughs> which is obviously what I need to go and do. 
Good stuff, good stuff. Well, we'll let, uh, we'll let Kev uh, find his way out of the room that he sat in and just uh, remains to say <laughs> thank you very much uh, to the two of you for coming on the podcast today. And of course, thanks to everybody listening along. Now, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport magazine came out on Thursday and will be available on the supermarket shelves and in newsagents, as well as on the doormats of subscribers. There'll be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday, packed full of news, analysis, and the usual stunning photography. And of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo. Written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network.